They say banks are boring, credit unions are dull. We don't agree, we love them all. Except for the big banks and neos who take a market share, make consumers blue. Need a fresh perspective, new direction. Take back banking and make some connections. If you feel stuck, it's not your fault. Here's an idea, try thinking outside the vaults. When I was a kid, I loved Davy Crockett and Johnny Appleseed. I'm fairly sure there's a video on somebody's VHS camcorder of me on stage reciting the Johnny Appleseed song while wearing a pot on my head. Hi, I'm Zach Garber, and you're listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast for community banks and credit unions who see every dollar as seed money and every person as more than the sum of their dollars. And here's a fun fact that you may not know about Johnny Appleseed. All that tree planting that he was doing wasn't purely philanthropic effort. It was entrepreneurial as well. By planting the trees, Johnny was legally staking claim to the land so that he could later sell it to incoming pioneers. But it was years before anyone could enjoy the fruits of his labors. There are some strong parallels for community financial institutions especially when you examine the work of building relationships with consumers. The megabanks, neobanks, and other competitors know that every account they can open is like staking a claim on undeveloped land. And here to unpack this idea with me is Casasa's chief research analyst, Patrick Dixon. He's seen firsthand the challenges that community financial institutions are facing, And he's got a few ideas about how you can plant seeds for years of sustainable growth. So sit back and dial your ears in for another great conversation on Thinking Outside the Vault. This is a two-part episode, and you're listening to part one. We've released them at the same time so that you can hear the rest of the conversation as soon as you're ready. Patrick Dixon! I'm so excited to have you here on Thinking Outside the Vault. Really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I think our audience is in an interesting position right now, and I think we've got some good perspective for them. Uh, and awesome. I love. Oh, yeah. sorry. <laughs> and I'd love for you to just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do here at Casasa. Well, thanks, Zach. Um, excited to be on this. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a, a fun experience. I love to, to talk about this kind of stuff. So um, me, um, chief research analyst with Kasasa. And so, you know, uh, really what that means is I get to run around and dig through call reports and our data and pretend that I'm smart to people. So um, <laughs> that's kind of what I do. But uh, between that, I also work with our sales teams and client teams to um, have conversations with our you know, not only existing clients, but also prospects around how our products work and um, building up business cases and those types of things, pro formas and and whatnot. So, you know, mostly spend my time in the nerdery. <laughs> well, we've worked, we've worked together now uh, on a couple different projects. And I will uh, just clue our listeners in that when Patrick says he's pretending to be smart, he's being very humble. Uh, and it's really, it's been a joy to, to work with you on this stuff. And it's, it's fun to, it's fun to dig into what could be a really kind of boring data set and find the meaningful uh, insights and that sort of thing that we can share with, with, you know, community financial institution leaders. Well, so uh, today we're going to be talking about 
uh, a pretty big challenge that community financial institutions are facing in the industry. You know, and that's some of the work that we've already been doing together is looking at where balance sheets are after the stimulus and paycheck, paycheck protection and, and all this stuff. So I'd love to talk a little, have you put some more shape to that? Like, what are you seeing from your work with uh, community financial institutions? What are they trying to fix? Yeah, it's, um, it's been a rough uh, 15 months. And honestly, it started before um, COVID hit. There were there were already signs um, going into 2020 with like the Fed making some different moves around what they call quantitative easing and rate adjustments and those types of things, which are super. Those tend to really only impact banks and credit unions, but all of those things uh, are what we term liquidity. Mm-hmm. meaning um, deposits or, or funds available in the industry to spur on the goal is to spur on lending um, and sort of monetary creation and that type of stuff, which is the, the nerdy way of saying uh, ultimately over the last 15 months, banks and credit unions ended up with a lot more liquidity, a lot more deposits than they had in terms of lending opportunities for those dollars which all goes back to how banks and credit unions really make money and what they do, which is, you know, they make loans by taking dollars that people have and being able to, to use those to, to fund those lending opportunities and that type of thing. And COVID just exasperated, exacerbated, exacerbated that. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think it's really, <laughs> I think it exasperated everyone and exacerbated yeah. everything. <laughs> exactly. Um, either one. Um, yeah, so they just ended up in this position that was really, um, really quite unfortunate that on the surface, you know, it was a problem for them from an earnings perspective, because that's going to have it be where there is going to be more difficult for a bank or credit union to make money, which means they have less things to put back into the form of, you know, how could they help out their, their customers or members and that type of thing. But it was all generally a byproduct of things that we had to do as a country or an economy to make sure that consumers were also taken care of because so many people had lost their jobs due to, you know, an economic slowdown caused by a crazy pandemic. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that was really just what faced people. And I think there were a lot of fears, especially early on as to this is going to be, this is going to be a problem. And they all start going back to the great recession and the the real estate bubble and, you know, all the movies that we had, the big short and those types of great things. Movie. Are, it's a great movie. And it's a, a phenomenal way of taking these nerdy topics and, and making them relatable to people. But, uh, you know, everything that transpired actually kind of helped us prevent a lot of that, but we were still left with banks and credit unions kind of quote unquote holding the bag in the sense of, well, what do you do now? Um, you've got all these deposits and you, you, the consumers just aren't borrowing as much because, well, they didn't need to. They were trying to make sure they could actually, you know, put food on the table and those types of things before they went out and bought new PlayStations. <laughs> or a new boat, yeah. We've talked about this a little bit beforehand. So some of the solutions for to say a, a you know an imbalance the loan to deposit ratio that's that's high on deposits uh, would be to look for some to score some big loans right and and try to fix it in a couple swift strokes is that is that a solution that is working right now or not yeah that's the 
So that's the million dollar question for banks and credit unions, which is now that they're in this particular position, um, they don't really like it. And so they're trying to figure out what's the best way that they can go about uh, reversing that trend of, you know, the imbalance, the, the, the decline in their loan to deposit ratio, which when they do it on their own, they're fine with. But when it happens to them without them asking for it, throws all of their planning into uh, disarray. And so they have to make <laughs> decisions around what are we going to like? How do we go get more loans? How do we go get more consumers? And so they have to start, you know, sort of stack ranking everything that they want to focus on. And usually what comes quickest, and we did see this, which is reducing things like marketing spend, because they're like, well, we keep getting all these people and their dollars in, shut off the faucet. Like, I don't want more people coming in. Um, and we have to find a new source for these deposit dollars. So they're out there looking for things like lending opportunities, which you know, the playbook there is, is fairly limited in the, in the sense that they can go out and try and refinance things. And a lot of people did that with real estate, but we saw credit card lending decline rapidly, again, tied to the consumer. And then you have to start thinking about bigger commercial type decisions, which is kind of a playbook that they, they tend to run, which is like, can I go out and buy large participation loans? Can I go out and, and buy into those types of things? And, and for the most part, that doesn't really exist in the scale that they needed to. Are there opportunities like that? Certainly. But um, I mean, commercial real estate, which is one of the big plays from a, a participation loan standpoint, it's not exactly like everyone wants to get into that business right now either. When right. Most businesses have realized, oh my gosh, like working from home is uh, theoretically way cheaper for me as a business. And my people can be just as productive. So maybe I don't want to do that either. So looking at that and saying, well, wouldn't it be great if we could go get some loans to sort of fix this problem? You know, some big loans, like you're saying, participation. And and that's not, there's just not enough low hanging fruit there, right? To really take care of what's going on. I think it's, and then I think it's interesting to look at kind of the mega banks and their approach to retail banking. And, and I would love your perspective on this because I'm not, I don't consider myself an expert, <laughs> but from the reading that I've done, it looks like a lot of those big banks are, are pushing back into uh, retail banking in a way that they had sort of abdicated maybe for a little while. Like, oh, we're not really worried about getting retail consumers. Um, and now it seems like they actually are, you know, you have things like Marcus, which has now been around for like, I think about five years. Um, you know, but that was a big signal, right? Maybe a shot across the bow, like, oh, we're not just an investment bank, you know, Goldman Sachs, we're actually going to do some other things and try and get some of these individual relationships. What do you think is going on there? What's driving that that motivation to to push back into retail? Well, I think it's it's what the word you just used, which is relationships. And, and that's really the the sort of name of the the game when it comes to going after retail consumers and and members when we're talking about credit unions is what can you do with that relationship and so um i don't want to piss off the the mega banks too bad by dogging them but when you well if they're listening how, yeah i, mean, I don't know <laughs> yeah, we're coming for jamie diamond is listening you know let's have lunch i don't know um, <laughs> but um the the way they go about doing their business and, and 
and still have success is is sometimes surprising um, in terms of how they actually interact with consumers and are able to convince people to continue to open accounts with them when you know they'll charge you know twenty five dollar monthly maintenance fees with really no hope of the average consumer ever being able to waive that. So like the the cost of operating an account from the eyes of the consumer is like you're not earning any interest. You're actually paying a pretty large fee. Uh, and if you put that into an interest rate, it's like shocking, but um, it's, you know, the convenience that people see that's, this is where it all comes like home to roost with, with our clientele, community banks and credit unions, which is how do you convince somebody to, in this particular time, focus on continuing to gain those relationships when you feel like you're completely full on, on deposits and those types of things. But those larger institutions, they also understand that, you know, they're, they're facing the same things, which is high levels of deposit growth and, and, and whatever from a liquidity standpoint. But they're still willing to take in those consumers because they know that they can turn those consumers into relationships and that they do other things with other lines of their business. I mean, everything from being able to cross-sell an individual into insurance and investment banking services to, um, you know, additional consumer lending to, um, you know, gaining, you know, insight into what they do from a small business perspective or, you know, commercial relationships. Everything begins with how do you gain that relationship and then start to engage with it at a, at a higher level. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, and, and uh, talking about this, you know, the the work that we did ahead of this episode, like the idea of there being sort of two broad approaches to growth, uh, and and you can look at some of these bigger banks, and if we're using a metaphor of like a forest, the bigger banks have sort of scouted out where the big forests are, gone in and harvested what they needed, and now they're realizing, oh well. We, we've got to start planting some forests if we're going to have trees to cut in the future, right? And community banks and credit unions are in this position where it's like, well, I don't really want to plant any more trees necessarily. I don't, you know, I, I, what what am I going to do to grow? You know, and and you know, there's an there's an old saying, right? That the the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, and the next best time is now, which which gets at the like the pain there, which is that. It'd be great if you already had those relationships with people. So what are you going to do now to grow? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great analogy um, in terms of thinking through what's facing banks and credit unions now, that concept of like, hey, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And you know, maybe it's in the case of banks and credit unions, it's not 20 years ago. But I mean, there are things that, that we probably should have been doing as an industry 20 years ago. Well, technology, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of adoption issues from from that perspective. But in terms of focus um, around the consumer, I don't think banks and credit unions, community banks and credit unions, would be guilty of not focusing on consumers and relationships because obviously that's what they've built their reputations on mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, of that type of thing. But um, what I would say is that it's also quite obvious that they've been losing ground in terms of being able to gain those relationships and continue to engage with them at a deeper level. So 
the question becomes, if you want to call, how do you get more consumers and engage with them deeper as that tree mm-hmm. that you know you need now? Um, how do you go about doing it? Well, I mean, I wish we could go back five years and replace all of your single service households with households that are deeply engaged with you, you'd be in a much better position. <laughs> you'd be getting um, the kind of loan, like in, in aggregate, you'd be getting the sort of loan activity that would, would maybe see you through a situation like today. Yeah, or you would at least be much better off, like yeah. as opposed to being at a, you know, 50% loan to deposit ratio, you might already be at 75. Um, and you would just, again, the math works out to where you would just be better off. Um, yeah. But now you have to make the, the decision of what do I focus on right now? And that's where the, like, there's a lot of things that come into that concept with the tree analogy, which is like, well, do I go out and buy a seed and, and plant that? Or do I go out and buy a sapling? Mm-hmm. Um, or do I go and spend a lot of money and buy like an actual fully formed, you know, 15 or 20 foot tree? And plant it so that I can get shade in my yard right now. Yeah. Um, they're all just very things. Do I go to Home Depot? I don't know who Home Depot would be in this analogy, but like, <laughs> like I don't think Home Depot has the best like trees. Like you would probably want to find like a certified arborist that was like organic or whatever, right? Um, that has a better chance of that tree surviving or or those types of things. So there's a lot of ways that you can take that analogy, and I think that would be a fun way to do it is to sort of think through like. What does that look like um, for for banks and credit unions? Because that is the decision. Right. How do I go about starting to build that forest? Yeah, and and I think it's interesting to see. It's interesting to look at at competitors like Square and Chime in this case because I th- I think you see them uh, taking a, what would be called a list building approach, They're just trying to acquire some relationship with consumers, you know, and, and now, you know, Square's got something like 36 million active users. That's a big forest. There's a lot you can do with that. And, you know, they don't have branches. I mean, they have a bank charter now, but they don't have branches. And, and now they're, you know, their mission is, is to come up with ideas for, for how to maximize those relationships. You know, I mean, they sent me, they've been asking me to, to, to get a debit card with them for a while now. And I just, I don't need it, but they sent one to me anyway. (laughs) I think hoping that uh, I'll just start using it. Like, well, I guess I'll put it in my wallet, you know, and that's, that's an easy way to get my money out of my, out of my square account rather than waiting a couple of days or whatever that is. Uh, And that's, so that list building approach is, is interesting because it's not like, it doesn't start from the standpoint of how do I, how does square get the most out of a consumer right off the bat? Right. They're trying to figure out how to offer value and trusting that having that data and having that relationship is going to grow into something later. Yeah, I think you're right in terms of the, the aspect of list building and, and gaining a critical mass that they can then convert into other types of things like Square and China. I guess they're I think they're kind of approaching it from different angles. Right. Like Square with the, the way they were able to sort of integrate as an alternative to like a, a point of sale transaction oh, yeah. type thing. And now they're, they're moving in different directions. Um, they, you know, bought into convenience at some level, 
right? And uh, now are, are using that to to see if they can't, you know, move into a different space. And Chime is kind of coming from the approach that's probably more directly, um, or at least on the surface, has been more directly a competitor to community banks and credit unions in the sense of mm-hmm. um, it's a you know a checking account type play. Right. Where we're going to go after their their sort of PFI status, and they they provide a few things, and and they just get a lot of people to come and do it. They don't have a, a ton of like bells and whistles to their their accounts, but they've they've bought into the convenience aspect. And you know, I think there's a popularity and sort of just you know general consumers like to to do the next big thing, and they've they've mm-hmm. grown quite quickly. Um, and then we'll see if they they continue to actually get people to, to activate and and engage with them from a, a long term. But it all goes back to the same thing, which is if we can get people to come in, we can build out their relationship um, in profitable channels. Right. And shoot the, if they sent you a debit card, I mean, if it was a chip card, I mean, how much did those cost? Like five or six dollars? I mean... Like that's not a cheap marketing strategy no. on the surface to send that to, to anyone. So one, you should feel proud that they decided <laughs> to spend $5 on you, but um, like that's a, that's not an insignificant, you're not the only person they send it to. Right. You know, but that's a, that's an expensive outreach strategy to get you to try and turn that debit card on. Yes. Yeah, it is. And it, so it's, it, and you know, they're not, I, I like what you said about convenience, just because I think that you can see how the, in these two examples, they're not trying to be everything to everybody. You know, they're, they're not coming in with a kind of full featured support model, the way that maybe like, you know, we could say USAID has, you know, um, but they, they clearly are focusing on customer acquisition and then slowly building out some of those other, you know, relationship opportunities and, and how, how deep can they get? Um, you know, and then they're probably willing to sacrifice, uh, some other things like, you know, customer satisfaction, right? Like what happens if you have a problem with chime? What's Mm -hmm. what's that look like? (laughs) Who do you call? Yeah. Well, you were, I think you were saying this to me that like you tried to, I don't know if it was Chime that you tried to contact. But yes, like, it was. Mm-hmm. Like you never actually talked to somebody like, yep. or, or like it was just not a possibility. When you call them their phone tree, all roads end in email more or less. And so you just yeah. email support <laughs> and hope that they get to you quickly. Um, which stinks. Right. And like, ultimately like, you know, it's a numbers game for them. Like they're not trying, like they know they can't, um, they can't compete. And so you use USAA as a, a good example of that. That's kind of what they're, they're going for to a certain extent, right? Which is to be able to have some sort of a, a model that just begins to yield results of deeper levels of um, cross-sell and going into things. I mean, USA has, you know, bank accounts, checking accounts, investment services, insurance, auto, home. Like, I mean, they have everything yep. and, and they they have, I mean, they're kind of the gold standard when it comes to do your customers love you and, and want to recommend your services and that promoter score type stuff. But also just in terms of customer retention and, and being able to, to drive profitable 
business structures out of that type of PFI, you know, primary whatever status. Um, yeah. and, and Square and Chime, I think, are, are probably happy to to have a limited level of, of success that begins to mirror that, but I don't think they're ever going to get to, they're banking on the fact that people will be happy enough not engaging with people. Right. Right. As long as it's as long as the customer service app is simple and lets people sure. do quickly what they need to, then there aren't even that many opportunities for you to have a problem. Right. Like right. there's, it's a, it's a less complex relationship. And I think but that, that has like a, like that would personally scare me as a, as a, if I were an executive with square or chime and this is probably something they're thinking about, but like, what do you, like if you're talking about your money, like that's kind of like makes me feel a little bit nervous as a consumer that like at some level, like if, if I've got their app and I can never talk to somebody and there's a problem, like I'm just hoping that they'll email me back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's yeah, I, I agree with you. They're, they're counting on the idea that that consumers are just not that worried about it. You know, and I think that's probably a generational thing because, I, you know, my dad, like the idea of something like Square which freaks him out. And he would just, you know, it's only been in recent years. My mom has like a PayPal and that's sort of how like money gets shuttled back and forth between us. It's like she was willing to get a PayPal and he's like, well, you know, send your mom some money on PayPal or whatever. You know? yeah. It's like, OK, dad. Uh, but it's interesting because uh these, when you look at some of these, it may not feel like any one of these competitors is really that big of a threat. They don't have branches in your town. They're, you know, Chime and Square have no branches. USA has no branches, right? I don't, I don't think. <laughs> I don't know. You yeah. can, like go into a, uh, a brick and mortar to, to talk to somebody there. And, and they're content to have, at least at, at this point, to have a relationship with a consumer, even if it's not the primary relationship with a consumer. And I think, you know, from some of the other work that we've done, looking, you know, trying to help our, our clients and, and the industry at all to look at this a little bit differently, that, how do I say this? I mean, the, the, the point is that they have a relationship. And if an opportunity opens up for them to take that primary financial institution status, they absolutely will do it. You know, they're, they're the, the, the minute that that opportunity opens, like they're going to be asking for that business. And so what may feel like a fairly secure relationship with a consumer, cause they've got direct deposit with you and it seems like they're using their debit card pretty stably. Like there are real threats that are, that are waiting in the wings, you know, when it, when it comes to that. Oh yeah, I mean, hundred percent. It's um, they're you know, are they shadow threats? I mean, they're not going to show up in a deposit market share report or something like that because you know all of their deposits are going to go back to one particular location. So you know, they're not going to see you know Chimes accounts in Austin, Texas, as right. you know their their particular competitor, but. Um, they absolutely exist and the numbers are growing in terms of the, the types of neobanks and consumer acquisition models, you know, between Walmart and Starbucks and Amazon, I mean, Google and name one, like everyone is, is trying to, uh, kind of get into that particular space. And I think that's where, 
you know, the community financial institutions and frankly, even, you know, the mega banks have a, a much bigger lead in this particular space. But if they don't, you know, they don't water their tree, it's not going to turn out well for them in that right. particular regard. Um, but that's that's the struggle. And that's kind of the hard thing for it's the uncomfortable thing for executives right now to, to have to start to think about, which is what level of focus do I want to put on this when I feel like I don't need anything else? And so, yes. you know, it, I think it becomes a, the, the real understanding is expanding your, I guess your view of the consumer themselves, um, you know, from, just part of the sort of like, Hey, they're a deposit or it's a consumer like, yeah, they use their debit card. I have their, their ACH and beginning to take a far less myopic view of it and continuing to expand that out to, to gain a, a bigger understanding of what it is that that relationship actually does for you. What does that consumer mean? Right. How well, much are they tied into you from a lending perspective? That's the end of part one of this two-part conversation with Patrick Dixon. You can hear part two by subscribing to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform or by visiting podcast.casasa.com. Thanks again for listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast produced and distributed by Casasa. Our theme song was written by Victoria Kerr. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leaving a review. This helps other listeners to discover us. You can also send your comments and feedback to social at casasa.com.